Did you know? A microscopic image of a dolphin appears on a computer chip hidden deep within the GameCube's system. This is in reference to the Nintendo GameCube's codename, The Dolphin, which is also referenced in many of the console's games. In one of the system's launch titles, Pikmin, the main character, Captain Olimar, pilots a spaceship called The Dolphin. And in Super Mario Sunshine, most of the game takes place on an island in the shape of a giant dolphin called Isle Delfino. Some speculate that the water-centric themes of Mario Sunshine, as well as Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, tie back into the dolphin's name as well. The machine's GPU was even given the dolphin-inspired name Flipper by the hardware design company RX, who helped with the GameCube's creation. Prior to this codename, the successor to the Nintendo 64 was internally referred to by Nintendo as N2000. Unusually, the GameCube has an abbreviation GCN in the West, despite the fact Japan uses the more sensible NGC abbreviation to stand for Nintendo GameCube. What's also interesting about the GameCube's development is that Nintendo developed and patented an early prototype motion controller for the console. The motion controls went so far into development that the game developer Factor 5 experimented with them for potential use in their launch titles. A similar situation occurred with Nintendo and Factor 5 during the development of the Nintendo 64. Factor 5 wanted to use the Nintendo 64 expansion pack to improve Star Wars Rogue Squadron's graphics, but Nintendo only wanted the pack to be used with hardware peripherals. After seeing the graphical benefits that the expansion pack gave to Turok 2 Seeds of Evil, however, Nintendo decided to allow Factor 5 to use the expansion pack. The GameCube itself released after about four years of development and was helmed by Dr. Wei Yen, a graphical engineer who had been the head of Nintendo Operations SGI, the department responsible for the Nintendo 64's fundamental architectural design. The GameCube's final design strangely has code referencing Nintendo 64 peripherals, such as the rumble pack and memory card, and even obscure peripherals such as the keyboard and mouse. Chunks of text containing these strings can be found as leftovers in various games like Wario World. A version of the GameCube service disc can also detect Nintendo 64 controllers. Nintendo created a variety of tech demos during development of the GameCube in order to show off its upgraded graphical capabilities to game developers. An interactive demo released in 2002 takes place in a new version of Princess Peach's castle, specifically showing off things like large textures, lighting and shadows, anti-aliasing, and a large number of polygons on screen all at once. Earlier in the year 2000, during the gaming event Space World, another tech demo shown was Meowth's Party. It was an animated music video with three 3D Pokemon character models and a more detailed model of Meowth holding an electric guitar. Fans initially theorized that this was a teaser for a new Pokemon game, but that seems not to be the case. It was likely based on an ending sequence for the Japanese dub of the Pokemon anime series, which aired almost a year earlier than the tech demo. A similar sequence was seen again many years later in the GameCube game Pokemon Channel as the final part of an exclusive anime episode titled Pichu Bros in Party Panic, where Meowth's movements are different upon each viewing. Meowth's party was also referenced in Super Smash Bros. Melee as a trophy. The GameCube was the first major console in Nintendo's history to not launch with a game where Mario is the protagonist. Instead, Luigi's Mansion was developed as the system's Mario Universe game. After the GameCube's worldwide release in 2002, players began to unlock some interesting secrets found right in the system's startup screen. The most well-known of these secrets can be triggered by holding down the Z button on the controller while the startup intro animation plays. <laughs> However, another set of sound effects will play when holding down the Z button on four controllers plugged in at once, with an old-fashioned Japanese-style flair to it. The soft reflections on the logo's graphics also share a fun secret. The texture mapped onto them is the same texture used for all shiny objects, and the Nintendo 64 logo in The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. When on the menu screen itself, a slow ambient tune is heard in the background. Speeding it up by about 19 times normal speed reveals the slow series of tones is actually the Famicom Disk System startup jingle.
Nintendo has a history of unique and interesting marketing campaigns for promoting their new consoles. The catchphrase used during the GameCube's official reveal at E3 was, The Nintendo Difference. The purpose of the phrase was to distinguish themselves from the competition as an entertainment company first and foremost. Later, advertisements pushed the slogan, Born to Play, and commercials for upcoming games featured a rotating cube animation that morphed into the system's logo and ended with the voice that whispered, in what was possibly the most bizarre piece of advertising was a contest titled What Would You Do for a Nintendo GameCube, where fans were picked to perform stunts that they'd chosen in order to prove themselves as the most dedicated Nintendo fan. The five finalists who made it to the competition on November 1st, 2001 in San Francisco had a collection of incredible acts. They included a man from Illinois who proposed to his girlfriend while they were dressed up as Mario and Princess Peach, a man from New York who juggled several Nintendo systems while dressed up as Mario while whistling the Mario theme. A little boy from Wyoming who painted a Nintendo GameCube logo out of condiments only using his tongue. A girl from Arizona who ate a Nintendo GameCube-sized replica of uncooked Spam, chocolate syrup, and cat food. And finally, the grand prize winner, Corey Oaksbury from Texas, who shaved his head, painted himself blue with a leaf on his head to look like a Pikmin, and ate a bowl of worms and crickets. Oaksbury won a prize pack including a GameCube, a Game Boy Advance, a collection of games, and $5,000 for his act. Did you know? Nintendo may have originally planned to name the GameCube the StarCube. Nintendo of America submitted three separate trademarks for StarCube in 1999, and the name was even posted on the official Nintendo website for Sweden. However, Nintendo's American and Japanese officers denied any knowledge of the name. According to the Swedish site, the system's online network would have also been named Star Road, referencing an area of the same name in Super Mario World. Nintendo veteran Shigeru Miyamoto pushed for the console to keep its project name, and simply just be called Dolphin. Despite his efforts, Miyamoto failed to gather support for this idea. Choosing the name, GameCube, and designing the system's logo was a collaborative effort between Nintendo's Japanese headquarters and Nintendo of America. This was to make sure the console's name and appearance would work internationally. Strangely, the GameCube is abbreviated as GCN in the West, even though it's abbreviated as NGC in Japan for Nintendo GameCube. This is likely because the abbreviation NGC is a trademark of the National Geographic Channel in the United States, and is generally associated with National Geographic. The channel even files trademarks under the company NGC Network US when registering new shows. Another possibility for the difference between regions is that NGC was close to the abbreviation for the Neo Geo Pocket Color, NGPC, and Nintendo wanted to avoid any confusion or association. When making the GameCube, Nintendo wanted to create a system that looked like the ultimate gaming console and not just another entertainment device that sat on a shelf. Several early designs were flatter than the GameCube, and one design even looked like a UFO. These designs kept leading to dead ends, however, so Nintendo looked at how gamers actually interacted with their consoles. Research at the time showed that Japanese families preferred smaller electronics in their household, and this data influenced Nintendo's designs. Most families had multiple TVs at home, and Nintendo wanted the system to be easy to take from room to room, or even to a friend's house. They decided to make the system compact and easy to hold to fulfill these needs. This is also why the system has a handle on its back. Although the GameCube's design had a mixed reception, its controller is often praised. The GameCube controller went through the most revisions of any Nintendo controller before it. The controller took three years to develop and was updated on a monthly basis. At one point, the B button was kidney-shaped like the X and Y buttons, and there was even a prototype controller that lacked a D-pad. While designing the controller, Miyamoto wanted to focus on the recognition of the joypad's main button, and making sure the player immediately knew which button was most important for playing games. The controller was also designed to have different distinct shapes for each button. This was so that players could know which button they were touching without having to look at the controller. In 2008, Nintendo almost faced a ban that would stop them from selling GameCube, WaveBird, and Wii Classic controllers. Nintendo lost a case that appealed against a $21 million patent infringement 
challenging lawsuit from a Texas-based company called Anascape. The patent seemed to be a generic patent relating to video game controllers and the application of analog controls, which Nintendo questioned the validity of. Because Nintendo lost the case, they were told that they would no longer be able to sell their controllers. However, they were allowed to continue selling their products while they took the case to the US Court of Appeals. The appeals court ultimately sided with Nintendo, and the company were free to continue producing and selling controllers. Nintendo had to deal with legal affairs of another kind early in the GameCube's life. Shortly before the console's release, Microsoft offered to buy Nintendo for $25 billion. Nintendo of America's then-president, Minoru Arakawa, originally thought the offer was a joke. But once Microsoft's intentions were clear, Nintendo took the offer seriously and discussed the deal in Japan over six or seven meetings. Microsoft wanted Nintendo to drop its console business and make games for the Xbox. But Nintendo's CEO at the time, Hiroshi Yamauchi, didn't like the idea and believed Microsoft lacked an understanding of the industry. Any chances of Microsoft's offer being taken died before the release of the GameCube. Although Nintendo turned down Microsoft's offer, they did forge business relationships with other gaming companies. After the GameCube's release, Nintendo and Sega teamed up to bring Fantasy Star Online Episodes 1 and 2 to the GameCube, complete with online play. However, their partnership led to some unintended damages. In October 2003, it was discovered that, when used with Fantasy Star Online, the GameCube's broadband adapter could channel unauthorized programs and code to the GameCube. This included Retail GameCube games copied onto a computer, which opened the doors for piracy. Hackers found that when playing Fantasy Star Online, they could change some of the connection settings and access locations on their own computer instead of the game's official servers. This allowed them to stream their own code directly onto the GameCube. In response to this, Sega released an updated version of the game that fixed the exploit and made much of the game's online content available offline. Beyond online connectivity, Nintendo put an emphasis on game Game Boy Advance connectivity while developing the GameCube. One game that would demonstrate the possibilities of GameCube and Game Boy Advance interaction was Stage Debut. Stage Debut was planned to work in sync with the Game Boy Advance's Game Eye add-on. The Game Eye was a camera which would allow people to take pictures and overlay these images on 3D models in Stage Debut. Although both Stage Debut and the Game Eye add-on were cancelled, the game inspired the creation of Nintendo's Mii characters. Another unusual set of GameCube add-ons released exclusively in Japan. The game Ohenro-san, Hoshin no Dojo, came with an optional mat and pedometer. Ohenro-san was a literal walking simulator and was made specifically for the elderly. The player could stand on a mat add-on and walk on the spot, causing the in-game images to progress in a Google Street View-style fashion. Using the pedometer, players could also walk outside, then download its step count to the game to progress. Gamers would walk the grounds of 23 Japanese temples in the game. This was a sample of the 88 temples associated with the real-life Shikoku pilgrimage. As well as unusual add-ons, there was an entire GameCube console that wasn't produced by Nintendo. While developing the GameCube, Nintendo licensed the system's gaming tech to Matsushita, the company which owns Panasonic. This was part of a deal struck while Matsushita produced the optical disc technology for the GameCube. Because of this collaboration, Nintendo sanctioned Matsushita's development of the Panasonic Q. The Q was a Panasonic-branded GameCube capable of playing DVD movies. And Although there was interest behind the idea of a DVD-compatible GameCube, the Q sold poorly and was discontinued in 2003. Due to the Q having a different shape to the GameCube, as well as legs on its base, the original Game Boy player couldn't be attached to it. Enough Panasonic Q owners complained about the incompatibility that Nintendo actually partnered with Matsushita to create a Game Boy player specifically for the Q. There was yet another device capable of playing Game Boy Advance games made for the GameCube. Dattel made a third-party Game Boy Player rival called the Advance Game Port. The device is largely seen as inferior to the Game Boy Player, as many games have audio and video issues. However, the Game Port did have a built-in action replay feature for cheats, as well as a save slot feature for saving anywhere.
Did you know? At one point, the Nintendo 64 could have been the Sega 64. Plans for the N64 originated when Silicon Graphics Inc., or SGI, approached Nintendo with their new energy-efficient and cost-effective CPU. However, Nintendo were not their first choice. The processor was initially shown to Tom Kalinske, then CEO of Sega America. After some debate among Sega's hardware designers, the company declined SGI's offer. This was due to uncertainties about the chip's performance and associated manufacturing risks. Kalinske advised SGI founder Jim Clark to contact other manufacturers, which led to a successful pitch with Nintendo. The contract between Nintendo and SGI was signed in August 1993, and work began the following month. The time between the project's inception and its eventual release in June 1996 was fraught with delays. The setbacks came from Nintendo, who wanted to ensure enough games and a solid marketing plan were ready at launch. Inevitably, these delays brought trouble with them. To prevent impatient fans from buying other consoles during the 1995 holiday season, Nintendo ran advertisements well in advance of the N64's release. These ads boasted that the Nintendo 64 was well worth the wait only if you want the best. Nintendo's confidence in the N64 partly came from a previous venture with Silicon Graphics technology, Donkey Kong Country. Country's visuals played a key role in its massive success and allowed Nintendo to compete visually with emerging 32-bit systems. And since Sega were recklessly diving into the next generation with the Saturn, Nintendo felt comfortable delaying the N64 by six months to ensure its quality. These delays inadvertently led to major developments in the World Wide Web. Jim Clark resigned from SGI in February 1994 and began brainstorming new ideas alongside a software engineer named Mark Andreessen. Encouraged by Clark's previous experience with Nintendo, their first idea was an online service for the N64. When they discovered the system wasn't intended to ship until late 1995 at the time, they went back to the drawing board. The next project they eventually settled on was the world's first commercial web browser, Netscape Navigator, which played a huge role in popularizing the internet as we know it today. Andreessen has himself speculated that the duo probably wouldn't have made Netscape had the Nintendo 64 released earlier than it did. The console was intended to launch under the name Ultra 64 in the West and Ultra Famicom in Japan. The Ultra title was possibly intended as a reference to the several toys Nintendo manufactured in the 1960s. The Ultra line of toys included the Ultra Hand, the Ultra Scope, and the Ultra Machine. These were an early success for designer Gunpei Yokoi, who would later work on the D-Pad, Game Boy, and Metroid. While the industry speculated that the Ultra 64's name change was due to legal trouble with Konami, Nintendo offered another explanation. Nintendo 64 was a simple name that united the console under a single worldwide brand. The name was created by Shigesato Itoi, best known internationally for his work on Earthbound. He chose the name after hearing that people used Nintendo as a catch-all phrase for a game console, similar to how the name Hoover is used when referring to a vacuum cleaner. Itoi fell in love with the confident simplicity of the name Nintendo 64. In an interview with the Japanese magazine 64 Dream, he explained, Instead of rashly trying to envision the near future or the next generation, I was hoping to name it something that would just force its opponent out of the ring head-on. When naming cars and coming up with sedans or whatever, you can't even keep track anymore. Super excellent sedan. It's disgraceful, so I made it the most orthodox name there is. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Nintendo received criticism for using cartridges with the N64 as the rest of the industry had moved on to CD-ROM technology. The lack of memory in cartridges made high-quality audio and full-motion video challenging to produce. This inevitably led to third-party developers such as Capcom, Square, and Namco to favoring competing consoles over the N64. Nintendo justified their decision, arguing that the popularity of plug-and-play consoles was proof that a lack of load times was important to consumers. They also stated that using unique hardware made piracy more difficult on the N64. But other companies and critics were skeptical, accusing Nintendo of trying to maintain leverage over developers. Former chairman of Nintendo of America, Howard Lincoln, strongly denied the accusations. Lincoln said, I've seen speculation about how this was some plot to control third-party publishers. That's completely nonsense. There's just not a grain of truth in that thing. No discussion like that ever occurred. That was never an issue. It was strictly technology and counterfeiting. However, Lincoln believed that CD technology was still improving and Nintendo could change formats as soon as discs became the better choice. Eventually, talented developers were able to compress full-motion video and high-quality audio onto N64 cartridges. Angel Studios in particular managed to compress Resident Evil 2 from two CDs onto a single cartridge. The team had some difficulty doing this and severely underestimated what it would take to compress over 200 unique pieces of music onto a single cartridge. Under-budgeted as a result, they turned to Factor 5, a company notable for their ability to compress complicated audio onto N64 cartridges. Factor 5 previously helped with speech compression in Pokemon Stadium and even managed to include full audio commentary for every level in Star Wars Episode 1, Battle for Naboo. This commentary was regarded as one of the first of its kind in video games. Despite the efforts of Nintendo and their partners, the cartridge format had undeniable drawbacks. Cartridges were approximately 10 times more expensive to produce than CDs and took 2 to 3 weeks to manufacture, whereas CDs took 2 to 3 days. To counter this, Nintendo considered letting players bring their cartridges to participating Lawson stores across Japan and replace the software on the cartridge with another game. Dubbed the Game Kiosk, the plan was intended to offset both production costs for Nintendo and inventory risks for their stores. Nintendo had implemented a similar concept with the Famicom Disk Writer and the Nintendo Power kiosks in Japan, which allowed for data on Famicom discs and Super Famicom carts to be rewritten. Many Nintendo 64 games began as projects for the Nintendo 64's short-lived disc peripheral, the Nintendo 64 DD. Miyamoto himself has mentioned this fact, claiming that almost every new project he started for the console was originally for the 64DD. Reasons for the peripheral's repeated delays have been kept vague, with Nintendo citing difficulties in developing both the drive and the discs themselves. Although the 64DD was released exclusively in Japan, a collector and YouTube user known as Metal Jesus Rocks acquired an American 64DD from an anonymous seller. The model is noteworthy not only because it's American, American, but also because of the stickers on its case. The labeling suggested that it was retail-ready, or at the very least, a retail prototype. This means Nintendo was far closer to selling the 64DD stateside than anyone had realized before. A version of Super Mario 64 has also been discovered for the 64DD. This version was made for Nintendo Space World 1996 to promote the 64DD and was discovered in a Japanese pre-owned game store. The game has few differences to the cartridge version and seems to omit more than it adds, such as Mario's head being absent from the title screen. Did you know? The Nintendo Entertainment System, or Family Computer in Japan, was almost the world's first online multiplayer gaming system. According to Shigeru Miyamoto, plans for an online multiplayer network were scrapped due to the telecommunication infrastructure at the time not being able to support it. Nintendo eventually released a modern peripheral for the Famicom in Japan, but it wasn't used for gaming. Instead, it was positioned as a device for adults. It allowed users to view and trade stocks, gamble on horse races, and view banking data, amongst other things. Due to persistent connection problems and the inability to attract financial savvy users, 
users to the child-friendly gaming console, support for the modem was dropped. But according to Nintendo hardware designer Masayuki Yamura, the experience with the Famicom modem helped lead the Super Famicom's Satellite View add-on. The development of the Famicom began in the spring of 1982 under the codename Project Gamecom. Initially, Nintendo's research and development division were interested in creating a system that would allow near one-to-one ports of arcade hits in the home market. In fact, when negotiating with chip manufacturers for their upcoming console, Nintendo brought the arcade version of Donkey Kong as an example of what they wanted, instead of using the other home game consoles as a reference. Ultimately, the final CPU chosen for the Famicom's hardware was different from what Nintendo used in their arcade machines. This meant that the porting process of arcade games wouldn't be as simple as converting the pre-existing program. The games had to be recreated from scratch. In the case of Donkey Kong, designers meticulously examined every pixel of the arcade screen and measured the timing of animations with a stopwatch. The outer design of the Famicom was given the color red by request of Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi because it was the color of his favorite scarf. The console's eject button, which would cause cartridges to pop out, was suggested by designer Gunpei Yokai. It served no practical purpose and was simply added because he thought children would like it. The Famicom came with two controllers hardwired into the back of the unit. This was done in an effort to reduce costs, but the decision was made after initial plans to add controller connection ports to the front. Remnants of this can be found inside the system, as the controller wires actually connect in the front of the circuit board, but are extended out to the back internally. More early plans for the Famicom's controllers included arcade-like joysticks, but Nintendo eventually settled on using their patented D-pad from the Game & Watch portables. In fact, at one point, a Game & Watch unit was gutted and wired to the board of the Famicom prototype as a controller for testing. Like the Game & Watch, early releases of the Famicom controller came with soft, rubbery buttons, but these soft buttons wore down easily, causing Nintendo to update the controllers with hard, round buttons. Concerns over degradation also informed the design of the game cartridges. Nintendo worried about the physical quality of the cartridge pins because of the bad experiences with faulty connections and abrasion in their arcade units. So, rather than using pre-existing connection technology, Nintendo developed their own custom hardware. However, this meant that they had to test the connections themselves. This resulted in a period where employees were tasked to insert and remove games over 5,000 times in a row to ensure the cartridges wouldn't degrade for average users. Because of different cultures and expectations, Nintendo made drastic changes to the Famicom when releasing it overseas. Unlike Japan, North America experienced a monumental video game market crash in 1983, and retailers were unsure about the viability of home consoles in the region. Nintendo's first console unveiling for North America came at the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show in 1983, and was met with criticism. At this time, the console was renamed the Nintendo Advanced Video Systems. The new name and design was chosen to distinguish the system from other gaming consoles, partially due to the poor reputation video games garnered from the market crash. One change in the design ended up causing internal damage to many NES consoles over time. The Famicom's cartridge slot was changed to a front-loading cartridge socket on the NES. This was an effort to more closely associate the system with a common household item, the VCR. However, the force of repeatedly pressing cartridges down caused extra wear and tear, leading to glitches and system failures. Many gamers reacted to these problems by blowing into the cartridges to clean them. This did nothing at best because it failed to address the real problem. And at worst, the moisture from the player's breath actually sped up corrosion and the tarnishing of the copper connectors. On the marketing side of things, Rob, the robotic operating buddy, and the NES Zapper were included in various bundles to help sell the system as a toy. This was another effort to disassociate the NES with other video game systems. The Japanese version of the NES Zapper, the Famicom Gun, is slightly different. It was originally released with the game Wild Gunman and is based on a revolver-style handgun. The way the Famicom Gun and NES Zapper actually functions is similar to a camera. When the trigger is pressed, the screen goes black for a single frame. If the Zapper's light sensor didn't detect any light, it goes on to the next step. On the next frame, the screen displays a white square where the target is. If the gun sensor detects the square, then it registers it as a hit. If it fails one of the tests, it registers as a miss. Rob worked very similarly and communicated via optical sensors and flashes from the television. Because of differing refresh rates, both the NES Zapper and Rob only work with CRT televisions, not with LCD or plasma screen TVs. The NES and Famicom had more interesting peripherals. Nintendo experimented using 3D visuals with a stereoscopic headset called the Famicom 3D system. The headset caused nausea and headaches. It wasn't commercially successful, and it was never released outside of Japan. Another unreleased peripheral was aimed at a different audience. Nintendo once planned a knitting add-on for the NES called the Nintendo Knitting Machine. Outside of North America and Japan, the NES made its debut in a variety of other regions, both officially and unofficially. In South Korea, the system was distributed by Hyundai Electronics under the name Comboy. This was due to a trade embargo South Korea enacted on Japan after World War II. An unofficial clone of the Famicom was sold in China under the guise of an educational system. At the time, the Chinese government 
and had a ban on recreational video games. The clone was known as the Little Tyrant, and the system was endorsed by film star Jackie Chan in commercials and promotional material. In 1992, Russia and other former members of the Soviet Union saw the release of the Taiwan-manufactured Dendi system. It was an unofficial hardware clone of the NES, and nearly its entire library of games were bootlegs of NES and Famicom games. By 1994, over 1 million Dendis were sold, at a price of roughly $35 per unit. One last bit of trivia about the Famicom comes from its home country. Nintendo of Japan continued to support the 1983 console for nearly a quarter of a century. It wasn't until 2007 that Nintendo of Japan announced that they would no longer repair Famicom systems, and it was only due to the increasing shortage of necessary parts. Did you know? The Super Nintendo was developed in response to the Sega Genesis growing in market share. Nintendo was satisfied with the sales of NES games and had no immediate plans to develop a new console. Even after the release of Sega's hit Sonic the Hedgehog, Nintendo was unimpressed and convinced their games were better. But as the Genesis grew and developers drifted to Sega, it dawned on Nintendo that their grip on the industry was slipping. The Genesis also had an impact on the Super Nintendo's design. The system was called the Super Famicom in Japan and had a bright, colorful presentation with a multi colored logo and buttons, but the North American branch of Nintendo did not want the system to be perceived as a toy. This is why the Super Nintendo has a more muted color scheme and a dark gray logo. The system was given a curved loading bay to help prevent a common service issue from the previous console generation. Some gamers would place drinks and bowls of cereal on top of the flat NES, leading to spills through the ventilation duct and inevitable damage. This is also why the Super Nintendo's air vent is on the back. During the production of early Super Nintendo units, a mixture of flame retardant chemicals were added to the plastic formula for safety reasons, but several batches had an improper mixture of the chemicals, leaving some units of the Super Nintendo susceptible to a yellow discoloration over time. Many years later, fans discovered ways to remove the yellow color with a combination of cleaning chemicals. During early stages of development, one of the prototype designs for the North American Super Nintendo featured a crank lever mechanism to load and unload games. Many early prototypes were different in shape and size from the Super Famicom. Nintendo rejected these designs because, in addition to wanting something simple to use, they didn't want to change the internal components between the North American and Japanese versions of the console. In fact, the identical internal hardware means that Super Nintendo systems can play Super Famicom games with only a simple modification. The system's only region locking was the fact that the cartridges were shaped differently for each region. Some early concepts for the Super Famicom included backward compatibility with an additional slot for Famicom games, but this idea was scrapped to save cost. There was even a prototype unit that would connect the Super Famicom and Famicom games. The Super Famicom was designed with the intention of adding expansion units on the bottom, including the ill-fated Nintendo PlayStation and the Japanese-only View add-on. The View was a method of digital distribution through satellite, similar in concept to Sega's Mega Modem and the Sega Channel services. The add-on featured exclusive downloadable games like F-Zero 2 and a remake of the first Zelda game with a Link to the Past graphics. It also featured a very early system of downloadable content that was stored on expansion cartridges. In addition to playing games, View players could listen to real-time radio shows and read digital magazines, all of which were accessed in an Earthbound-like hub world. Nintendo continued to support the Saddle of You for five years until March 2000. North America had their own network-enabled hardware called the X-Band, which also had a version for the Genesis. It was the world's first console gaming network, and it worked by emulating local multiplayer over a telephone line. The service cost $10 a month, plus long-distance fees. The Super Nintendo also had a working prototype for a cartridge that enabled adults to use online banking. It was intended for households that didn't have a personal computer, and the cartridge would have come with a unique keyboard controller. Unlike the NES, the Super Nintendo faced a serious market rival for the duration of its life cycle. Sega came out with aggressive advertisements that were unlike anything Nintendo had dealt with before. Vice President of Design at Nintendo of America stated in an interview for the book The Ultimate History of Video Games, Sega came out slamming us in their commercials. They were naming us by name and that was a really big deal. We took it good natured and competed the best we could. Nintendo also lost favor with some publishing companies because of their strict quality control standards and high licensing fees. Many Japanese publishers that had success on the NES were happy to oblige and supplied the Super Nintendo with a large library of quality games. But some publishers in North America felt the standards were unfair and that the license fees were too high. This was especially true when compared to the PC games market. For this reason, Electronic Arts had a special partnership with Sega, which gave the Genesis popular sports games. This contributed to the image that the Genesis was a more mature console than the Super Nintendo. Thank <laughs> you.
One of the biggest blows to the Super Nintendo's reputation came when Mortal Kombat was ported to both the Genesis and the Super Nintendo. The Genesis version included red blood like the arcade version, but Nintendo effectively censored their version by changing the color of the blood and altering some fatalities. The resulting comparison caused an enormous backlash and harmed Nintendo's image with core gamers. This marketing blunder didn't happen without warning. Former Nintendo Executive Vice President Howard Lincoln recalled, Acclaim kept coming back and saying, look, we're going to make the Sega version and it's going to be right in line with the coin-op game. Having a toned-down version for Nintendo? Do you guys really want us to do that? Does that really make sense? Nintendo's strict code of standards excluded excessive blood, and they rarely made exceptions, so they forced the change. As a result, the Genesis version of Mortal Kombat outsold Nintendo's censored version 4 to 1. The results were so painful for the Super Nintendo that some industry members suggested that senatorial hearings in North America about violence in video games was crafted by lobbyists working for Nintendo. One of the unintended consequences of the hearings is that they served as free advertisement for Sega, and bumped up sales for both Mortal Kombat and the Sega CD exclusive Night Trap. When Mortal Kombat 2 was released on the Super Nintendo, Acclaim was allowed to have red blood in the game, and the Super Nintendo version of Mortal Kombat 2 sold better than the Genesis version. After the hearings in North America, Nintendo, Sega, and many other video game companies met and agreed on the industry standard ESRB rating system. After the ESRB was established, Nintendo became much more lenient about the content of their games. Another change to Nintendo after the violence in video games hearings was their marketing. No longer able to claim it was purely a family-friendly system, Nintendo of America tried to outdo Sega at their own game by targeting an older demographic. They even had mild comical gore in a commercial for Super Mario World 2. Many fans believed Nintendo's crass advertising went too far in the case of Earthbound. Instead of staying true to the goofy, lighthearted tone of the series, the marketing department attempted a form of reverse psychology featuring gross-out humor. Some magazine ads claimed, This game stinks, and included scratch-and-sniff stickers based on foul odors. Earthbound sold very poorly in North America, and the advertisements are often blamed for the poor sales. South Korea got the system shortly after it released in Japan. However, it was named the Super Comboy and was distributed by Hyundai. This was due to laws that aimed to center any and all Japanese culture in South Korea after World War II. Hyundai also distributed the original Nintendo as the Comboy, the Nintendo 64 as the Comboy 64, and the Game Boy as the Mini Comboy. Speaking of the Game Boy, the Super Nintendo wasn't powerful enough to emulate a Game Boy through software. So in order for the Super Game Boy to play actual Game Boy games, it had all the vital components of a Game Boy inside it. These components process the game, and the Super Nintendo simply displays the image. Did you know? The first rumor of a new Nintendo console came only a year after the Wii U's launch. On January 21, 2014, Nintendo News reported Nintendo was preparing a follow-up to the Wii U due to the console's limited success. According to their anonymous source, the console was called the Nintendo Fusion and would combine Nintendo's handheld and home console lines. The rumor's credibility was boosted by a detailed list of technical specs. Two versions of the console would be released, the handheld Fusion DS and the home console Fusion Terminal. The terminal was backwards compatible with Wii U software and came in two versions, one with a disk drive and one without. The console supposedly had an inductive charge surface, allowing players to charge both Wii Remote Plus controllers and the Fusion DS. The implication was that the Fusion would hybridize a home console and a handheld by being two separate consoles that connected. Complicating the story, Nintendo owned the domain name NintendoFusion.com. The site was created in 2003 to support the Nintendo Fusion Tour, a series of rock and video game-themed music festivals held from 2003 to 2006. However, the names of the components provided in the specifications raised some suspicions. Dan Van Winkle at the Mary Sue said names such as Jumpman, Kong, and Barrel did not fit with Nintendo's history of thematic but non-game-related names for the components. For example, the GameCube's GPU was named Flipper, a reference to its codename, Dolphin. Kotaku's Jason Schreier also scrutinized the Nintendo News article, asking writer Kevin McMinn about his source. Although McMinn knew little about the source's identity, they'd provided him reliable insider information in the past. McMinn was frustrated that while he carefully stressed none of his claims were verified, the online community did little to heed his warning. He said in the future he'd probably keep these tips to himself, as the article was, nothing more than a pain in the neck, really. Further doubt was cast when the same rumor, including the list of specs, was posted to the website Game in Realm on the 1st of January that year. The info supposedly came from an anonymous source, and the article admitted the info should be taken with a huge grain of salt. 
Schreier concluded his investigation by noting one or two anonymous emails could easily snowball into articles on some of the largest gaming websites. With the Wii U being just a year old, some dismissed any rumors, believing it was too soon for a new console. But late Nintendo president Satoru Iwata confirmed in a May 2014 investors meeting that Nintendo was already exploring new hardware ideas. The goal for the Switch had been decided. The company wanted to redefine video game platforms. Iwata estimated it would take around two years to accomplish this goal. In December 2014, an article was published in the Japan Times claiming the Sharp Corporation was entering a deal with Nintendo to supply the company free-form display LCDs that could fit any shape. Mass production of the screens would supposedly start in early 2016, and many assumed Nintendo would use Sharp screens in a new portable console. One of the Japan Times' sources even suggested Nintendo intended to use the screens' free-form capabilities to create a hole in the center of the display. The Switch, then named the NX, was first officially named on March 17, 2015 at a Nintendo investors meeting. Nintendo was mostly focused on their new partnership with DNA and their plans to bring Nintendo properties to mobile. To assure investors they were still dedicated to gaming systems, Iwata revealed the existence of a new dedicated game platform codenamed NX. He hoped Nintendo's foray into mobile gaming would get casual gamers to buy the NX through their new interest in Nintendo. Nintendo would also launch a service where players could log into a Nintendo account regardless of which system they played on. No further details were announced at the time, and with a lack of details came rumors, many of which anticipated a connection between the NX and Nintendo's new foray in mobile games. Some outlets read the announcement as the death of the Wii U, and anticipated further details at E3 that year. However, Iwata soon clarified the new console wasn't imminent, and the company would not make announcements about it at E3. It was only announced to dispel concerns about Nintendo exiting the console market. Iwata also said the NX wouldn't be a continuation of either the Wii U or the 3DS. Rather, it would appeal to a broad audience by taking into account different playing habits worldwide. This comment sparked speculation that the NX would lack region locking, letting players import games without modding their console. Around this time, Wired's Chris Kohler made an accurate prediction. The NX would integrate a handheld and home console into a single device. He presented the investors' presentation in March 2014 as evidence, where Iwata expressed frustration that Nintendo had to make handheld and home console software separately. The handheld and home console divisions of Nintendo had historically been separated as a result, but in 2013, Iwata united the two under Genyo Takeda's supervision. Iwata claimed vast technical advances allowed Nintendo to achieve a fair degree of architectural integration. Taking advantage of this allowed Nintendo to easily port games between handhelds and home consoles, helping solve the problem of game shortages on their systems. However, Iwata said Nintendo would only truly be able to take advantage of this advance with their next system. He was doubtful Nintendo could completely integrate the hardware into a single device and envisioned an architecture more like the iOS, a singular platform allowing Nintendo to upgrade hardware more frequently. Kohler concluded by predicting the NX was a suite of devices rather than a single one. It was around the time of this restructuring that Nintendo began taking pitches from third parties to develop hardware for their next console. AMD in particular was highlighted in rumors surrounding the NX. In July 2015, VentureBeat speculated Nintendo would collaborate with AMD due to their accelerated processing units, allowing for easier backwards compatibility. Nintendo previously used PowerPC processors alongside an AMD GPU in the Wii U, which, with its low power and extra screen, made developing for the console awkward for third-party developers. Consoles at the time tended to use x86 technology, which is industry standard and easier to develop for. On June 14, 2015, a video claiming to show leaked footage of Nintendo's new console was uploaded to YouTube. Supposedly having been filmed on a phone at E3 2015, even though it started circulating before Nintendo's presentation, the console revealed in the footage was called the XDS. It combined features of the Wii U and 3DS and was able to play games from both systems. The top screen could be turned around and slotted back in, making the XDS resemble a more traditional single-screen unit. Many spotted signs the presentation was fake. The voice used in the clip seemed to be Bill Trinnens, a Nintendo Treehouse employee unlikely to host such a high-profile presentation. It was speculated the audio was lifted from a Treehouse event or Nintendo Direct. Additionally, Nintendo had no physical presentation at E3 that year, opting for a Nintendo Direct presentation. Finally, the idea for the console contradicted Iwata's statements that the NX wouldn't continue the Wii U or 3DS lines. No major news sites reported on the footage, instead reporting on contradictory yet more reliable rumors. But then, another fake presentation surfaced. This one showed a console called the Nintendo Cross, which played on rumors about the partnership between Nintendo and AMD. 
The console was supposedly able to stream Wii U and 3DS games to tablets, smartphones, or the Wii U gamepad. It also boasted an unrealistic launch lineup, including Mario, Metroid, and The Legend of Zelda. The controller shown as a part of the presentation was an edited image of a Wii U Pro controller, with obvious artifacting around the edges. As with the XDS, this obviously fake leak didn't get much traction. In July 2015, Taiwan-based news organization DigiTimes claimed Nintendo entered a contract with Foxconn Electronics and planned to begin pilot assembly on the NX by October. This information, which also claimed the NX had a projected July release, came from an inside source but couldn't be verified. Rumors began circulating that Nintendo's new console was a virtual reality-slash-augmented reality machine. News outlet DigiCapital speculated Nintendo was entering the VR space to try and fill a market gap, as Miyamoto and Reggie fils both had talked about a lack of fun social games commercially viable in VR. On August 21st, a Nintendo patent was published for a stationary game apparatus, game apparatus, game system, recording medium, and speed control method. The patent was filed on February 10th, and describes a controller with a display screen that has no disk drive. In its place is a card slot, where a memory card containing software can be inserted. Some speculated this meant a return to cartridge-based systems. In October, the Wall Street Journal reported Nintendo had begun distributing NX development kits among third-party developers such as Square Enix, who had announced Dragon Quest X and XI for the NX in July. However, they shortly walked this back and said an NX launch was only being considered. The Wall Street Journal sources stated the NX took the form of a console with at least one portable component. They also reported the console used industry-leading chips. These reports of a portable component led to speculation that the console was going to be similar to the Wii U, with a separate portable device. Analyst David Gibson told the Wall Street Journal it was likely Nintendo would launch the NX in 2016 due to declining support for their current hardware. In November 2015, a DigiTimes article claimed 12 million NX units were expected to ship globally in 2016. According to the article, the target was initially 20 million, but this number was scaled back due to difficulty obtaining the required components. Around this time, another patent was published online. The patent, filed by Nintendo in June 2015, was for a game apparatus and information processing apparatus, and showed a long oval device with two pentagons at either side similar to the 3DS's circle pad. These pentagons could be used as buttons that adjusted to meet the player's preferences, such as changing to suit left or right-handed players. Most notably, the entire front of the pad was a touchscreen display. While it wasn't confirmed to be an official Nintendo venture, the nature of this patent and the odd shape of the display led some to conclude the device was the reason Nintendo partnered with Sharp. Sharp's freeform display was perfect for such a device, and the rumored holes in the screen could be used for analog pads. Another patent was registered by Nintendo of America on December 3rd. The patent hinted at a device that was both a home console and a portable console. The portable console attached to a supplemental computing device to provide additional processing resources. There's been no official connection made between this patent and the NX, though it sounds like it describes the Nintendo Switch dock. In January 2016, market research company GFK released a survey inexplicably containing information about the NX. The survey stated the console would allow the player to make video calls, support 4K 60 frames per second video streaming, and support 900p 60 frames per second gameplay. Participants were asked how much they'd pay for such a console. These specs seemed odd, as many Wii U games ran at 1080p. The survey was later confirmed to be pure speculation on GFK's part. Then came even more rumors. The Wall Street Journal tech reporter Takashi Mochizuki claimed the NX might work with smartphones, PCs, and even rival the PlayStation 4. He cited industry insider David Gibson as a source for this. On January 28th, industry consultant Dr. Sirkan Toto announced Bandai Namco was developing several NX titles, including Super Smash Bros., which was said to be a launch title. Whether this game was to be a sequel to or port of Super Smash Bros. for Wii U was unclear. In February 2016, behind-the-scenes info was given to DualPixels.com from a leaker known as Gino. Gino had a reliable track record of leaks, having accurately predicted new Pokémon forms and Microsoft's Illumarum project. He outlined a console that started production in 2014, and alleged Nintendo hadn't had this much forward momentum on a console launch since the original Famicom. Internally, the NX was supposedly thought of as Iwata's final project, and employees were said to end meetings and brainstorms by chanting, For Iwata. 
Gino went on to describe a console with a wireless HDMI dongle that allowed it to connect to the television, and the analog sticks had small motors in them for haptic feedback. This meant if the player ran into a wall, the analog stick could snap in the opposite direction to give a sense of impact. The feature would also be used when firing a gun, taking damage, or moving over rough terrain. The console was able to sync via Bluetooth with everything, including smartphones and tablets for viewing texts and phone calls. It ran on an operating system called Nintendo OS, and was said to have social features similar to Pokemon Go. The system architecture was easy to develop for, and the system was allegedly closest in power to the Xbox One. This was pointed to as the reason Nintendo was happy to give out dev kits so late. One dev is quoted as saying the NX was the easiest device we've ever developed for. On the 3rd of March, Gino once again provided dual pixels with info about the NX. They claimed Ubisoft's long-awaited Beyond Good and Evil 2 was to be an NX exclusive, with Nintendo funding the project in a manner similar to Bayonetta 2. The game was said to be titled Beyond Good and Evil, The Prejudices of Philosophers, a reference to a specific chapter dealing with authority and morality in Friedrich Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. This rumor was lent weight by Michael Ansel name-dropping Miyamoto when discussing the sequel with Tim Schafer. Upon investigation, Destructoid confirmed many of Gino's details with a second unnamed source. On the 15th of March, Dual Pixels published another article, this time claiming Luigi's Mansion 3 was to be a launch title for the NX. The game would show off how powerful the console was by creating a game that looked like the American commercial for Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon. The game would also use haptic feedback in the analog sticks. The following month, Gino claimed Activision was throwing their support behind the NX, gunning for a new Call of Duty game called Bloodlines to be on the console. On March 17, 2016, images began circulating of a controller with an LCD screen that looked very similar to the patent made public in December 2015. Initial images were posted to Reddit by user Idris2Dev, containing the console and a post-it note reading, You will say wow. The quote was from Iwata in reference to the Wii. Idris2Dev claimed the shoulder buttons had a scroll function similar to a mouse wheel. Users were quick to point out inconsistencies with the image, suggesting it was fake. The lighting under the screen wasn't uniform, and the image on it appeared to be an Unreal Engine 4 demo, which Nintendo was unlikely to use. A similar image was uploaded by user Perkel37 six days later. The entire rumor was soon undermined when the first image was revealed as a fake. A video was posted proving the 3D image of Idris 2 Dev's controller was edited together. Perkel37's photo was soon proven fake as well, but unlike the first hoax, it was of a physical object made using a 3D printer. YouTube user Frank Sanquist uploaded a video on March 25th showing how he made the mock-up. At a Nintendo investors meeting in March 2016, Iwata's successor Tatsumi Kimishima confirmed the NX would launch in March 2017 and would not be sold at a loss. More rumors emerged in April 2016. Reddit user Untyped Hero posted small tidbits of information. The NX ran on an x86 architecture, backed up data to a Nintendo server, could handle ports of current-gen games, interacted with smartphones and tablet apps, and could support an additional screen. The user was verified by the mod team as someone with connections to Wii U developers, lending weight to his claims. Then in came a large information dump from NeoGAF user 10K, describing yet another console Nintendo supposedly had in development. Said to be a successor to the Wii U's gamepad streaming technology, the console would have a screen controller with basic OS functions, but no processing power of its own. This controller was able to access the NX console from anywhere, though 10K did not explain the logistics of such a feature. They added that the console would have a custom Polaris-like GPU, referencing the Polaris series of AMD chips. According to the post, Final Fantasy XV was coming to the system, and the NX would launch at different times around the world. These rumors led to some speculation about the future of Nintendo's handheld consoles, as well as the feasibility of the proposal in consideration of the Wii U's performance. On April 12th, industry insider Emily Rogers tweeted that several ports were in development for the NX, including Zelda, Smash Bros., Mario Maker, and Splatoon. However, she made it clear that while these ports were in development, this was not confirmation they would be released. While Zelda was ported, the other three games received sequels instead. Rogers then doubled down on these rumors, posting Zelda was coming to both Wii U and NX, that the game featured full voice acting with the exception of Link, and that players could choose between a male and a female Link. While the latter prediction was untrue, it must be noted this possibility was debated internally at Nintendo. In the same month, Nintendo confirmed on Twitter that the NX would launch in March 2017. 
This announcement came on the heels of the same info being presented in their consolidated financial statements for 2015 through 2016. Nintendo also announced Breath of the Wild would release on both Wii U and NX simultaneously, delaying its release until March 2017. Many assumed the console was going to finally be revealed at E3 that year, but Nintendo stated they were showing only the new Zelda at E3, and not the NX. In June, DigiTimes reported on this rumor, claiming Nintendo delayed mass production of the NX from mid-2016 to early 2017 in order to add VR features. As the only VR feature Nintendo has added takes the form of Nintendo Labo, this claim is doubtful. In May, rumors the NX was ditching optical discs for cartridges resurfaced. Macronix, the company historically responsible for supplying Nintendo with its ROM chips, stated they were expecting a large amount of growth around the launch of Nintendo's new console. On May 13th, Rogers posted on her blog, refuting claims the NX ran on x86 architecture. She said the console used custom-made industry-leading chips. She finished her post by noting the only console the NX beat in terms of power was the Wii U. Rogers' claims were corroborated by Reggie fils in June. After Microsoft's Xbox One X was announced at E3 2016 under the name Project Scorpio, discussions about the new system's revolutionary power opened up. When asked about the NX in an interview with Bloomberg West, fils said they were prioritizing content over power. On June 14th, a trademark was submitted for Breath of the Wild, which stated a game was downloadable, available on game disc, and available on a video game cartridge, confirming the cartridge rumor. Another Nintendo patent was made public on June 30th. Filed on December 3rd, 2015, the patent described a handheld game console with speakers, a touchscreen, and force feedback. The patent noted sound and vibration in conjunction gave the player a sense of depth and direction in three-dimensional space. This rumble patent is similar to the Switch Joy-Cons' HD rumble feature. On July 26th, a major leak confirmed a number of details about the Switch. Tom Phillips of Eurogamer sourced info that said the NX was a handheld console with detachable controllers on each side. The mock-up Eurogamer presented is remarkably similar to the final product. Phillips also accurately claimed the portable console would connect to a TV using a dock, and the console used cartridges. According to Phillips' information, Nintendo considered making the NX digital download only, but eventually decided against it. The console wouldn't be backwards compatible, and the report claimed the final product ran on NVIDIA's Tegra processor rather than AMD, as many assumed. The information was largely accurate. It was also backed up by an independent report from the Wall Street Journal, whose sources described a hybrid console. However, they added the erroneous detail that the device could play Nintendo's mobile games such as Pokemon Go. Metro reported similar details, but added some speculation of their own about the existence of the supplemental computing device Nintendo had patented the previous year. This speculation proved to be on the money. Over the following months, information came out supporting Eurogamer's report. NeoGAF user Disorientator found a patent from Nintendo detailing detachable controllers like in the report. Nintendo also patented a gesture control feature that hasn't been seen on their console. Laura Kate Dale, while conducting independent research into the NX for Let's Play video games, found the Eurogamer report was accurate and added the console allowed force feedback and Wii remote functionality for multiplayer games. Dale later posted a new article detailing a handheld device with a striking resemblance to the Switch. While some of the details are inaccurate, the overall shape is unmistakably the Switch. The drawing even had segmented directional buttons rather than a D-pad. Dale reported the console did not have region locking. In August, an anonymous 4chan leak claimed the console was called the Nintendo Focus and was a hybrid console. So far so good, but the leaker also included a lineup of games that left many skeptical. The lineup included both a new Super Smash Bros. for Focus, as well as Super Smash Bros. Melee HD, ports of Pokémon Gold and Silver and Pokémon Sun and Moon, and a Retro Studios-helmed new F-Zero. On September 16th, the Breath of the Wild Amiibo range inadvertently revealed the NX's release date. They were posted with a launch date of March 4th, 2017, although this date was quickly changed to a vague March. The date ended up being one day out, with the Switch launching on March 3rd. On September 20th, Pokémon Company CEO Sunikazu Ishihara stated in an interview with the Wall Street Journal that the NX was trying to change the concept of what it means to be a home console device or a handheld device. Many took his statement as definitive proof the NX was a hybrid console. Later that same month, what was believed to be a sketch from a Foxconn employee was posted to NeoGAF. The sketch detailed a machine that looked very similar to the final Switch console, including one stating the dock improved the power of the handheld. 
The accuracy of the sketch is surprising, as it was soon confirmed to be fake. The original image was sourced to a since-deleted Chinese forum thread where users posted their ideas for the NX. However, it must be noted the same forum had previously been used to leak the PlayStation 4 Slim and PlayStation 4 Pro designs. On October 14th, my Nintendo news writer SSF1991 revealed that the Macquarie Group, an investment banking firm, had predicted the NX would be revealed the following week. This information was correct, and the NX was unveiled as the Nintendo Switch on October 20th, 2016 putting an end to years of rumors. However, rumors persisted even after this announcement. In December 2016, three sources told Eurogamer that the Switch would have GameCube games on its virtual console service. Several GameCube games were apparently running, with Mario Sunshine, Luigi's Mansion, and Super Smash Bros. Melee emulating perfectly, and an Animal Crossing emulation was being worked on. Eurogamer were also told there'd be an upgrade program similar to the Wii U's, where past virtual console purchases could be upgraded for a small amount rather than being purchased again at full price. Apparently, the Switch's increased power over Wii U allowed for proper GameCube emulation, which is why Nintendo avoided GameCube during the Wii U era. Another driving force behind the GameCube Virtual Console was apparently Nintendo's desire for Super Smash Bros. Melee to be easily playable. With the announcement of Nintendo Online in January 2017, this rumor was seemingly debunked. On October 4, 2018, the Wall Street Journal reported Nintendo was planning a new version of the Switch to be released the next year. The new model was meant to boost the console's momentum, which had waned after its launch year. Nintendo's known for revised versions of their handheld hardware, such as the Game Boy Advance SP, the DS Lite and DSi, and the 3DS XL and new 3DS. Nintendo frequently denied claims they were planning a hardware revision. In January 2019, President Shintaro Furukawa stated in an interview with the Sankei News that rumors of a price drop or hardware revision weren't true. Nevertheless, a Nikkei report issued soon afterwards claimed that Nintendo would release a smaller, cheaper Switch in 2019. This smaller Switch was to cost less, but have fewer features. In April, Nintendo gave a muted forecast for its financial performance and included no plans to unveil a new version of the Switch at E3 that year. Some investors and analysts considered this a bad move. However, a drop in the number of Switches Nintendo held in inventory led many to believe they were indeed preparing for the release of a new Switch. The Wall Street Journal, citing sources from a supply chain in Southeast Asia, reported Nintendo would continue releasing the original Switch model along with two new versions. In June, a series of Switch Lite accessories appeared on Chinese gaming accessory manufacturer Hanson SEN's website. Many were skeptical as the renders used a mock-up of a Switch Mini that was circulating online. There also were no specifications listed for the item's size or weight. On July 1st, Win Future leaker Roland Quant received images of a silicone case for the console from a reliable source, suggesting the final product's look. This was followed by the Nintendo Switch Lite being officially revealed on July 10th, 2019. Of course, the Wall Street Journal had reported two new versions of the Switch. On August 7th, they reported Sharp was to supply Nintendo with IGZO display panels for its new video game machines. IGZO displays are designed to be high-resolution, durable displays that don't consume much power. Sharp didn't specify which Switch models were outfitted with IGZO displays. On September 7th, Nintendo Life uncovered a new patent for Nintendo's Joy-Con controllers. Appearing on Japan's official patent database, the patent displayed what appears to be Joy-Cons with hinges. These hinges allow the left analog stick and face buttons to be angled down while in use. Back in February, several outlets including Direct Feed Games, Game Informer, and Zhu Video claimed Xbox Game Pass would be coming to the Switch. This would work via an app that streamed the games to Switch from a Microsoft server. A few months later, industry insider David Gibson reported on Twitter that Nintendo would work with Microsoft's Azure to offer its own streaming service. Although several rumors about Nintendo and Microsoft collaborating in some way surfaced around this time, there's little evidence to directly support them. Did you also know that the box art for Super Mario 64 DS is a sly reference to Mario Kart Double Dash? Or that Mario Party was censored in Korea due to gambling concerns? For a whole hour of Nintendo DS facts, click or tap the video on screen. What's your favorite handheld console? Mine has to be the Game Boy Advance SP. I think it's so tasteful and so cool. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.